Hey everyone, before we get to the main show, I have a little housekeeping to do first. So first off, you've probably noticed that this isn't episode 4. I'm afraid for reasons of school and life, I haven't been able to finish researching and writing for episode 4 or the regular narrative. However, I didn't want you guys to go too long without content. So I dug through my files and unearthed an older and very different first draft for this podcast. I was originally going to attempt to tell the history of the entire Middle East up to the Young Turks Revolution in 10 episodes, starting with the rise of Islam. Each of these episodes was going to be very long, but I abandoned that idea for a more recent start date. But the script is still good, I just needed to edit it a bit for how the podcast structure is now. Assuming you looked at the title of this episode, it is called Appendix B-1, The Rise of Islam. The first two episodes I uploaded to this feed, I eventually renamed Appendix A-1 and A-2. The reason for this is academic. In some nonfiction books and in The Return of the King, there is a section in the back of the book referred to as the appendices. The appendices is a place for information that couldn't be fit into the main body of the text, but the author thought it was still important to have. While regular chapters of a book are usually labeled with numbers, appendices are usually labeled with letters, and different letters correspond to different areas being covered. So, in this podcast, appendices that are labeled with the letter A are about Turkey. This newest appendices is about the origins of Islam, which is an Arabian-focused narrative, and so I started a new set of appendices. So, from now on, any appendices that is labeled with the letter B, you know is about Arabia. So that covers all the housekeeping I wanted to do. Thanks for your patience, and without further ado, here's the main show. Hello everyone, my name is Grant, and welcome to the History of the Modern Middle East. Appendix B1, The Rise of Islam. Before the birth of Muhammad, the Middle East was politically divided between the Byzantine Empire Sassanid Persia, and numerous tribes and kingdoms of the Arabian Peninsula. The Byzantine Empire was ruled by a Christian emperor, and most of the peoples in the empire were members of one Christian sect or another. However, there were still Jewish communities across the empire, and a small number of pagans still clinging on to their old ways. Persia was an ethnically and religiously diverse empire. This goes all the way back to the founding of the first Persian Empire. Its rulers have always been more concerned with governing practicalities rather than ethnic or spiritual uniformity, and they have a long-standing practice of letting conquered peoples retain their religions and social institutions. So long as you pay your taxes and send men to war when asked, the empire left you alone, and the same was done under the Sassanids. The largest religion in the empire was Zoroastrianism, which had been revived by the Sassanids several centuries earlier. Another major religion was Manichaeism, which had adherents as far west as Constantinople and as far east as China. There were also a number of Christians living within the Persian Empire. When the Persians sacked cities in the Levant, they brought back numerous Christian relics, which the Zoroastrian monarch made sure not to damage out of sensitivity to, and probably fear of, his Christian subjects. The Arabian Peninsula was filled with tribes and small kingdoms. Numerous religions existed side by side. The peoples of Arabia were familiar with Jewish, Christian, Zoroastrian, and pagan religious practices. 
Goods from across the Mediterranean arrived at Red Sea ports, and Arab caravans traded spices, textiles, slaves, and other goods as far away as Palestine and Syria in the Byzantine Empire. Both the Persian and Byzantine empires hired Bedouin mercenaries to raid the other, or to police other Arab tribes. Numerous Jewish tribes lived among the Arabs. The Jews mounted several revolts against the Romans in the early centuries CE. All of these revolts failed to drive out the Romans, and instead they resulted in the Romans driving out large numbers of Jews, creating what is known as the Diaspora. Numerous refugees went south into Arabia, where they blended into the local tribal structures. The Jews living in Arabia, although resolutely monotheistic, spoke Arabic and were culturally indistinguishable from their Arab neighbors. According to Arab tradition, one of the most influential cities in the Arabian Peninsula was Mecca. It is here in 570 AD that Muhammad was born to a powerful tribe, the Quraysh, but to one of its lesser branches, the Banu Hashem. The Quraysh were merchants who had connections with the pastoral tribes around Mecca, along with control of the Kaaba. The Kaaba was an important site in Arabia before Islam. The Arab peoples believed that they are descended from Abraham's eldest son, Ishmael, who was born from his relationship with the slave girl, Hagar. It is believed that Abraham and Ishmael built the Kaaba. The Kaaba was filled with idols from numerous religions, and it drove a lot of commerce towards Mecca, as pilgrims would journey to the city to make offerings to their god or gods. Islam plays a huge role in how the last millennium and a half of history in the Middle East is interpreted. But as important as this is, we need to be careful of the Arab accounts. For one, none of what happened in Muhammad's life or the early years of Islam were written down for over a hundred years after his death. Written history often reflects the thoughts and concerns of the time that it was written, rather than the thoughts and concerns of the time that is being written about. The problem with studying early Islamic history is that there are no primary sources from the Arabs. They were an oral culture, and although they did have a written language, this was mostly used for commerce. Because of this, we rely on secondary sources for the Arab perspective. And, surprisingly, we rarely look at the primary sources for early Islamic history because they are all written by non-Muslims. Every single word of it. One thing we should question is how important Mecca was to Arabia before Islam. This was the hometown of Muhammad, but there are almost no references to Mecca outside the Arab language secondary sources. We don't see Mecca mentioned in any non-Arab sources until the 8th century, so why would Mecca produce a revolutionary new religion? One theory is referred to as the Meccan trade thesis. It is a materialist interpretation of history, meaning that it focuses on economics, and believes that culture and religion are responses to economic circumstances, rather than economic systems being based on culture or religion. At the time of Muhammad's birth, the Byzantine and Sassanid empires were at war with each other over Mesopotamia. The fighting disrupted overland trade, which would require the caravans to be redirected. The Meccan trade thesis asserts that these caravans were redirected into the Arabian Peninsula, and therefore to Mecca. The increased trade grows the wealth of the Quraysh, thereby leading to social issues that Muhammad would preach against. However, the problem with this theory is that there are no records for how much trade was going through Mecca at any point during the 6th or 7th centuries. So we have no idea why Mecca produced someone like Muhammad instead of other places. There are alternatives and more controversial theories as to why Mecca isn't mentioned much before the 8th century, but that will be discussed in a later appendices. The most obscure part of Muhammad's life are the early years. 
It is said that his father was a poor man who died before Muhammad was even born, and his mother would die when he was six, leaving him an orphan. First, he was taken in by his grandfather, who would send him off to be raised by Bedouins for a while, where he would learn about the lifestyle of the nomadic peoples. This was a common practice among the settled peoples of Arabia, especially the wealthy, kind of like the children of wealthy British parents sending their kids off to boarding schools. After the death of his grandfather, Muhammad would be taken in by his uncle, Abu Talib, who is said to have treated him like his own son. There are stories about Abu Talib introducing his nephew to his friends as the white-faced one, and that he is the refuge for the orphans and the protector of the widows. These stories were written down long after Muhammad's death, so it's very likely that embellishments were made in order to give young Muhammad a sense of destiny to later audiences. Abu Talib was a merchant, and so it is probable that he brought Muhammad with him on trading missions. One story tells about a Monophysite monk named Bahira in Syria, who saw the young Muhammad coming into the city with his uncle's caravan, and that a small cloud was shading only Muhammad. The monk asked Abu Talib about the boy, and when told about his background, he asked to meet him. It is said that he wanted to see if the boy possessed any marks on his body that were foretold in an ancient manuscript. He found said marks on Muhammad's body, and told his uncle that the boy was destined to do something great. This story is most likely apocryphal, since the earliest written version of the story is from over a hundred years after Muhammad's death. This story serves the role of having Muhammad be recognized for his future greatness by non-Arabs and by a non-Muslim. These travels in his younger years, along with the exposure to numerous religions and cultures in Mecca, would have made Muhammad very cosmopolitan for the time. At 25, he was hired by a wealthy widow named Khadija to manage her caravans. The status of women in pre-Islamic Middle East is similar to what it is today. Women were treated as second-class citizens whose values come from who they can be married off to. This means that Khadija must have been very charismatic if she managed to keep her previous husband's wealth after his death. Muhammad and Khadija would eventually get married. The traditional narrative says that their relationship was one of mutual love and respect. However, there are historians who claim that Khadija's marriage to a younger male of lower social rank was to solidify her own standing within the extremely patriarchal culture that was 7th century Arabia. The two of them would have six children, two sons who would die in childbirth, and four daughters. And for as long as Khadija lived, Muhammad would take no other wives. Which was, and to an extent still is, a common practice in Arabia. Muhammad had made quite a life for himself. He became quite wealthy and gained a lot of respect within the community. He was often brought in to arbitrate disputes because he was seen as being diplomatic and just. However, as he neared 40, he began to question what his life was about. In our time, we would just consider this a midlife crisis. But for Muhammad, this was a conflict of the soul. He saw many of his class with overwhelming amounts of wealth, while widows and orphans barely scraped by. To find meaning or answers to these problems, he would periodically go out into the wilderness to seek spiritual guidance, almost like a Native American vision quest. Well, one of these outings into the wilderness would change his life, and the history of the world forever. There are numerous versions of the story that are told, but the traditionally accepted one is that he encountered the angel Gabriel, other versions of the story say that he was given a silken cloth with writing on it in his sleep, or that he was tackled by a jinn. 
All of the stories involve a voice telling Muhammad to recite. After several protestations, he did so. What he said is believed to have been the divine word of Allah. This is how the Quran began to take form, and Muhammad became the last true prophet of the one true God. From that point on, at any moment he could begin reciting more of Allah's divine word. Now, not everything Muhammad said was considered to be from Allah. It is said that his voice changed in a way that is indescribable. He wasn't speaking like a person would if he was just talking. It's often described as being similar to singing, but not quite. The way you often hear the Quran recited by Arabic speakers is considered to be the closest equivalent anyone other than the Prophet to replicate the way it was recited when Allah spoke through Muhammad. You can find a link to an example of this in the show notes. Within Islam, there is an emphasis on the spoken word, and that hearing the Quran chanted in this way is part of the experience, like singing hymns in a church if you're a Christian. There are many Muslims who believe that the Quran should only be read and chanted in Arabic, but that is a topic for another episode. The Arabs had a strong oral tradition, and it is most likely that Islam's emphasis on the spoken word comes from this pre-existing cultural trait, rather than as a divine edict. And it is said that his closest followers would memorize word-for-word word the recitations. Muhammad did not see himself as starting a new religion. Rather, he thought of himself not only as a blood descendant, but also as a spiritual descendant of Abraham. He believed that he was continuing the same monotheistic tradition of Abraham and the numerous other prophets. And so he believed that the Kaaba should be Mecca's only shrine, a temple to Allah. Today, most consider Muslims to be worshipping the same God as Christians and Jews. However, there are arguments against this. The God of the Jews and Christians already had numerous names, such as Yahweh, Jehovah, or Elohim, that would have been known to the Arab peoples. On top of this, there was already a god represented in the Kaaba by the name of Allah. It was a tribal lunar god that watched over Mecca along with several goddess daughters. It also seems suspicious that the most common symbol representing Islam is a crescent moon. Over time, however, the name Allah transformed from being the name of a particular god to being the generic word for god in the Arabic language. Arabic-speaking Jews and Christians also use the word Allah when talking about their God. Whether Muslims worship the same God as Christians and Jews is a contentious subject, and I'll wait till a later episode dedicated to the theology of Islam to discuss it in more detail. The first convert to Islam was Muhammad's wife Khadija, followed closely by his cousin Ali. His uncle Abu Talib is said to have never converted. He gained a small number of followers, including a few young members of the influential families of the Quraysh, along with other tribes and groups who had connections with the Quraysh. Muhammad's relations with leading families of the Quraysh worsened as he gained more followers. His recitations were attacking all of the wrongdoing of the rulers of Mecca. His attacks on polytheism was also a threat to the pilgrimage trade that journeyed to the Kaaba. It is said that the ruling Quraysh leaders persecuted Muhammad and his followers for his teachings. Some of his followers are said to have fled Mecca to seek refuge in Ethiopia across the Red Sea. Muhammad's uncle protected him for some time, however his safety fell into question after Abu Talib died. In 622, the position of Muhammad and his followers became very precarious. He had heard of a plot to have him killed, 
So the Prophet decided that he and his followers should leave Mecca and settle in another oasis 200 miles north, Yathrib. This settlement would later become known as Medina, which means City of the Prophet. Arrangements had been set up for Muhammad and his followers by traders who had come to Mecca and invited him to become an arbitrator for tribal disputes. This migration from Mecca to Medina would later be referred to as the Hijra. It would also become the starting date for the Muslim calendar. The flight from Mecca to Medina would become symbolic for Muslims, and not only symbolized escape from danger, but also seeking protection away from your home. It would also come to symbolize the abandonment of paganism and the acceptance of monotheism. When the Muslims arrived in Medina, they made a pact with the two main Arab tribes and some of the Jewish groups. Each of these groups would be allowed to live by its own laws and customs within their own communities. But when there were disputes that crossed community lines, Muhammad would be given final judgment. This gave the Prophet and his followers nearly unquestionable power within Medina. During his time in Medina, the nature of Muhammad's recitations began to change. When they were in Mecca, the divine recitations had more to do with social justice and poverty. After they moved to Medina, they began to deal more and more with formal practices of religion and the duty of Muslims to spread their religion. This is when the teachings of Muhammad became more violent. All of the verses in the Quran that speak of killing infidels and apostates come from the recitations of this period. Islam was more than just a set of moral codes and rituals to honor God. It was also a system of government. Christianity and Judaism don't prescribe a specific form of government. They only ask that those in government behave morally. Islam, on the other hand, holds that the state promote the true religion of the one God. As Muhammad's teachings became more sectarian, tensions began to rise between the Jews and the Muslims of Medina. The Jews could not accept Muhammad as a genuine messenger of God within their own traditions and Muhammad accused the Jews of perverting the revelation that Allah had given their people. The exact reasons for the conflict between Muslims and Jews of Medina are uncertain. One of the issues may have been the direction in which the community of Medina prayed. The Jews had always prayed facing towards Jerusalem, but Muhammad commanded that all should pray facing towards Mecca. Muhammad also began placing a greater emphasis on his relationship with Abraham. It was also commonly believed by the Arab people that they were descended from Abraham's son Ishmael. It was also believed that Abraham built the Kaaba and thereby founded the city of Mecca. It could be that Muhammad was trying to reconcile with the Quraysh and make Mecca an approved site for Muslims to make pilgrimage to. And a number of people living in Mecca had converted to Islam in Muhammad's absence. They eventually came into conflict with the Quraysh of Mecca. The exact reasons are disputed though. Some sources say that the merchants of Mecca were in danger of losing their alliance with tribal chiefs and therefore losing control of trade. Others believe that it was a holy war to convert the people of Mecca to Islam. The leaders of Mecca had continued to be hostile towards Muhammad and his followers, who could not feel truly secure until Mecca was under Islamic control. The leaders of the Quraysh had put a bounty of 250 camels on Muhammad's head. The merchants of Mecca stepped up their trading expeditions in order to finance an assault on Medina. Muhammad countered this by leading raids on caravans. After a year of raids, the Meccans decided to attack the Muslims directly. A thousand Meccans met 300 Muslims at the Battle of Badr, where they were defeated. The Quran mentions the Battle of Badr as evidence that Allah can overcome any odds. Numerous Bedouin tribes had sided with the merchants of Mecca, but after these battles, the tribes began to switch sides. 
The second major battle of the war between Mecca and Medina would happen in Uhud in 625. The Meccans assembled 3,000 men to attack the Muslims, who could only assemble 950. Outnumbered more than 3 to 1, the Muslims still believed that they could win because Allah had delivered him victory at Badur with the same odds. They seemed to be winning the battle at first, but when the Meccans fell back, many of the Muslims broke formation and pursued in hopes of obtaining more spoils from the battle. But then the Meccans attacked the Muslims from behind, and Muhammad was injured. Their defeat at Uhud posed a theological question to the Muslims. If the Battle of Badr proved that Allah could overcome all odds, and that he was the determiner of fate, what did the defeat of Uhud mean? Muhammad said that Allah let them lose that battle to teach them a lesson. He said that they must fight for a righteous cause, and when the Muslims broke rank in pursuit of earthly riches, they lost Allah's favor. This created the theological answer to all Muslim defeats. If you lose, it's because you were not righteous enough. It should be remembered, however, that Christianity and Judaism had similar ideas at this time. The Meccans assembled a third army to attack the city of Medina directly. Muhammad got word of this and ordered a moat be dug, hug and filled around the city. When the Quraysh arrived, their camels could not cross the moat. They decided to siege Mecca instead. Switching to a siege strategy scuttled another plan that the Quraysh had. They had planned on using the remaining Jewish tribes in Medina as a fifth column to attack the city from the inside while the Meccans attacked from the outside. Because the assault never came, the Jews inside Mecca lost their nerve and never rose up. And when this conspiracy was exposed, the remaining Jewish tribes were exiled or killed. The Quraysh had recruited a number of tribes outside of Mecca for the attack on Medina with promises of spoils. When the assault on Medina never came, many of the recruited tribes snuck away during a sandstorm. After losing so many men, the Meccans were forced to call off the siege and return to Mecca. During the war with Mecca, numerous tribes and agreements would be made. In 629, the leaders of Mecca would allow Muslim pilgrims to enter the city. And a year later, in 630, Muhammad's army surrounded the city of Mecca, and it was surrendered to Muhammad with little resistance. After taking control of the city, Muhammad's first act was to destroy all the idols within the Kaaba. This is reminiscent of a story from Jewish folklore that Muhammad and most Arabs were probably familiar with. A non-biblical story about the early life of Abraham said that he was the son of an idol maker. It is said that one day, when Abraham's father was gone, Abraham took a club and smashed all but the biggest idol. When his father returned home and saw all but the biggest idol destroyed, and asked his son what had happened, Abraham said that the big one had destroyed the small ones. His father berated him, saying that that couldn't happen because they were made of stone. And Abraham's response to this was, then why do you worship them? I haven't seen a record of anyone making this comparison, but I can't imagine that someone as learned about Judaism as Muhammad or his followers wouldn't have made this connection. Muhammad also abolished privilege of blood. Control of the Kaaba switched from the Umayyad to the Hashemites, who control it to this day. Muhammad kept Medina as his capital, and he exercised absolute authority over both cities. There was no complex system of administration, just a number of deputies who took orders directly from Muhammad. His treasury was filled with voluntary gifts as well as levies and taxes from different tribes. Since the death of his first wife, Khadija, he had taken several other wives, some of which were for purely political reasons. 
He made agreements with tribes outside the city because he controlled the oasis, which were the economic hubs of Arabia. The nature of these agreements varied from tribe to tribe. Some were simply peace agreements and others were religiously oriented with the tribe agreeing to convert to Islam and to submit to the authority of the Prophet. In the last years of his life, he also began the work of expanding his empire into Byzantine lands by sending raiding parties into southern Palestine to observe the level of Byzantine troops and resources. In 632 CE, Muhammad made his last visit to Mecca, where he gave a speech that traditional accounts state messages such as, every Muslim is a Muslim's brother, and therefore fighting between Muslims should be forbidden. He also said that he and his followers would fight until all men confess that there is no God but God. He died later that year, leaving multiple legacies. First, there was the legacy of his personality. His closest followers would later give testimony about his life. However, it would be nearly a century before these testimonies, or the recitations that would become the Quran, would be written down, and were most likely altered in the interim. Living one's life in the way of the Prophet became the highest form of submission to Allah. Another legacy was that of the rituals adopted by the community of all the Muslims. They all revered the Prophet. They went on pilgrimage at the same time, fasted during the same month, and united in daily prayer, praying towards the same location. And above all else is the legacy of the Quran, which would become the ultimate authority within Islam, the words themselves becoming sacred in a way that Christianity and Judaism did not replicate. Islamic tradition says that the Quran has retained its complete authenticity since its first recitation. There is no accounting for the actions of deities, but for the actions of humans this claim seems unlikely. Human memory is notoriously bad, and historians have a bias against oral traditions like the ones the Arabs practiced at the time of Muhammad. All scientific research has shown that humans don't remember things perfectly. We tend to emphasize things that we think are important and forget the things that we don't. It's not just that modern it's not just modern scholars who question the authenticity of the current Quran and the Hadiths. Numerous persons who lived within the time of the rightly guided caliphs claimed that text that was never uttered by Muhammad was added to the Quran. I could go on, but this is another subject that is better suited to an episode dedicated to it. When news of the Prophet's death first spread outside of his household, there was a sense of disbelief. One of his most loyal followers and future successor, Omar, threatened to kill anyone who spread this kind of rumor. Muhammad's older follower, Abu Bakr, investigated the claim. When he returned to the people outside the Prophet's home, he said, O Muslims, those of you who worship Muhammad, know that Muhammad is dead. Those of you who worship Allah, know that Allah is alive and immortal. His words eliminated all denial from Omar and everyone there. God's messenger was dead. Muhammad's death resulted in confusion amongst his followers. It wasn't just a question of who would succeed Muhammad, but how would they succeed him? And what authority would they have? Muhammad was supposed to be the last prophet of God. Would whoever succeed him have this same authority? Muhammad had been the sole ruler of the Muslim peoples in Arabia. He acted as the final authority on all issues, religious and secular, both prophet and a king. Because Muhammad had been chosen by God directly, the community of Muslims could not pick another man with the same religious authority as Muhammad. But they needed someone to replace Muhammad or else the Ummah would collapse. The next leader needed to be blessed by Allah, 
but not be directly guided like Muhammad was. This was because Muhammad had said that there would be no other prophets after him. Whoever their leaders ended up being would need to have the authority of both religious and secular affairs because the community knew no other system, and the recitations of the prophet did not speak of any separation of religion and state. A race to replace the prophet had begun. Abu Bakr had heard rumors of the native Muslims of Medina trying to appoint a new leader themselves. Abu Bakr gathered a group of Muhammad's close followers, including Omar, and crashed the meeting at Medina. At the meeting, he proposed that the whole community should have a say in selecting a new leader. He nominated Omar and another of the Prophet's close companions. Omar, being a big and boisterous person, was appalled by himself being nominated, and so nominated Abu Bakr instead, saying that he, as one of the Prophet's first converts and most loyal followers, that he was the only logical choice. The meeting gave its unanimous support to Abu Bakr, who would take on the title of Caliph. The title of Caliph had never been used before, and there are multiple translations of it. It can be translated as the successor, deputy, or servant of the Prophet. But no one knew what the title meant at the time. The details of that would have to be set by Abu Bakr and his successors. After he was chosen, he made his way to a nearby mosque where a crowd had gathered. At this mosque, it was announced that he had been chosen to succeed Muhammad, and it was proclaimed. However, not everyone was at the mosque or at the meeting. One of the Prophet's closest companions wasn't even considered. His cousin Ali. At the time of the meeting, Ali was busy washing Muhammad's body. And by the time... He had heard about the meeting they had already chosen Abu Bakr as his successor. Ali had a very close relationship with the Prophet. Not only were they cousins through the relationship of both their fathers, Muhammad had been adopted by Ali's father Abu Talib, which made both of them brothers by adoption. Ali was also 30 years younger than Muhammad, and for a time lived in Muhammad's household with his wife Khadijah. Considering the age difference, Muhammad treated his cousin Ali almost like a son in the same way Ali's father had treated him like one. So Ali was considered to be Muhammad's cousin, brother, and son, all at the same time. Ali was also the first man to convert to Islam, making him the second Muslim overall, and the first male Muslim. When Muhammad was under threat of assassination, Ali would sleep in Muhammad's bed and blankets, prepared to take the knife for him. At the Battle of Ahud, Ali was among those who rallied around the Prophet and prevented the battle from being a complete rout, and carried the wounded Muhammad back to Medina. The Prophet had kept Ali as his right-hand man. In his last sermon, Muhammad had said, Any of you who consider me your patron should also consider Ali your patron. On top of all this, Muhammad had no sons, and only one of his daughters gave birth to sons that survived past childhood, Fatima and Fatima was married to Ali. In this situation, anyone would be angry, especially if you weren't even considered or consulted. Who else was closer to the Prophet? However, there was a strong case to be made against Ali. The Prophet had never said that there was anything special about his family or bloodline. Just being related to the Prophet did not give someone authority. There was also the fact that Muhammad had taken it upon himself to destroy most of the blood privileges that existed in Mecca 
that allowed certain clans to concentrate power for generations. The actions of these groups were explicitly condemned by the Prophet before the Hijra. Many in the community sought to separate religious and political authority from the Prophet's bloodline in order to prevent future situations like the one in Mecca at the time of Muhammad's birth. Not only that, but the traditions of the Arabs at this time would not have allowed Ali to have been chosen the new leader. Ali was just over 30 years old at the time. He was considered to be passionate, but imprudent. Abu Bakr, on the other hand, was over 60. He was considered wise and experienced, which is what the community believed they needed after Muhammad. On top of this, the traditional title of Sheikh literally means old man. No one knows exactly how long it took for Ali to concede the elections to Abu Bakr, but most agree it was within six months. But Ali's acceptance of Abu Bakr as the successor of Muhammad did not sway his supporters. This incident created the rift we see within Islam today. The supporters of Ali would become known as the Shia, which in Arabic means partisan, while the supporters of Abu Bakr would become known as the Sunni, which in Arabic means consensus. To this day, the Shia believe that Ali and his descendants were the only legitimate successors to Muhammad. The divide between Sunnis and Shia started as a political one, but over time would become more theological and doctrinal. And this is where I want to end this episode for today. In the next appendix, I will be covering the history of the first caliphate under the rule of the rightly guided caliphs. If you are interested in learning more about the subjects covered in this episode, I have my sources listed in the show notes for this episode on historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can send an email to historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com. If social media is more your thing, you can also contact me through the Facebook page. I also have an official Twitter account for this podcast with the handle at HMME underscore podcast. So you can contact me through that account as well as my personal Twitter account at Grant G. Hurst. I would also appreciate it if you could give this podcast a rating and a review on iTunes or any other podcasting services you use. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.